morning. Um, it's amazing. I'm looking at my Bible, and the next page is Acts, which is crazy. It's like my Bible just automatically opens up to John now, and I'm looking at Acts, and it's messing me up a little bit. Uh, so hopefully you've enjoyed this last year and a half as much as I have. We are going to jump into our text pretty quickly, but I just want to encourage you why we do what we do and the benefit of spending time in a particular book of the Bible. In our culture of sound bites and you know, YouTube clips and, and ads and verses of the day, we can try to uh, you know, nibble our way here and there. Scripture is a meal. And so we take our time and walk through books of the Bible because there is much to digest. And we chew like a great steak. When you cut it up, you want to chew it and savor every bit. And that's what we do when we walk through Scripture. And I think this is important in the context of the local church, uh, but also in our personal lives. That when we read through Scripture, not just run through it because, okay, I'm going to pat myself on the back for doing a spiritual thing today. This actually feeds us spiritually. And there is a benefit to seeing what the author has to say. John, inspired by the Holy Spirit, wrote down exactly what he intended to for us to read. And if you pull a verse out here or there, you may miss the, the, the purpose and the intention of the writer. So I encourage you, as we walk through a book, if you're not here for a week, all the sermons will be on the website. So all the sermons from last February are up on the website. Um, but also, as you're, and you're going through your, your daily studies, read books in their context. Sit down and spend some time in a book. Don't just race through. Uh, So where we pick up in John, last week we looked at this beautiful restoration of Peter. Peter who denied Jesus three times. And Jesus gives him an opportunity to examine his his own heart by asking him three questions. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Such piercing and pressing questions. It gets right to the heart of everything. Why do you do what you do? Why do you do anything? Nothing else matters if you do not love me. And if you do love me, it will naturally pour out into love for the saints. And so we talked about the application for us. Do we really love the saints? Do we really love those who Christ loved? Are we known by our love, therefore being the witness of his disciples to the world? But why? These people are crazy the way that they love and care for one another. So that is a a great witness within the church And this morning we're going to look at John's witness within this text and actually within the entire book of John. What what is it that John wants us to know and what is it that John emphasizes? And hopefully that will be clear by the end of all this. So if you would, grab your Bibles, pick up in John chapter 21. I'm going to read verse 20 through 25. So Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. The one who had also leaned back against him during the supper that they had had. Uh, excuse me, the supper, and said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread among the brothers that the disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it is my will that he not remain until I come, what is it to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things, who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we thank you for the revealed word. We praise your name for the witness it is to who you are and what you have done. Our creator, our redeemer. And what a blessing it has been in the book of of John. Page after page, we learn about our Savior. We learn about His humanity. We learn about His deity. We learn about His his person. We learn about His work. How He taught and how He served. How He suffered. He died. He rose again. And John looks forward to His ascension. We also get the, the, the great teachings to the church that are so applicable to us. And Lord, let us not take lightly your revealed word. Let us not take for granted that we carry it around every day in our pockets, most of us. Let us never lose the awe and wonder that all the books of the world could not contain or explain your glory. 
Let us be people who is in awe and wonder of your word so that we are rooted in it, so that our witness goes out as a light into the darkness, as your people in a lost and fallen world who desperately needs the gospel. Let us be people who are rooted in the gospel. And so I pray that your spirit would work in and through us to go out into our neighborhoods and to our neighbors and our friends and our, and our families, that your word would ever be on our lips and we would be witnesses to your goodness, that there is peace and hope and reconciliation through Jesus Christ and life everlasting for those who believe. This is who we are. This is, what we, this is our foundation, and it is in his name we pray. Amen. So we pick up in verse 20. 19 finishes with the words, follow me. And so John kind of gives us this, this detail. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. So we can probably assume that Jesus and Peter are walking and talking. And Peter, as soon as he hears, follow me, he looks behind him. I don't think that that's here unintentionally. And then there's three details here about someone who's following him. Who's following him? Uh, The one who Jesus loved, the one who had leaned against him during the supper, and the one who said that, Lord, who is it that's going to betray you? So this is three things. This is essentially John's autograph. You want to know who's writing this? You want to know who is following Peter? The same one who Jesus loves, the same one who leaned on him, and the same one who asked the question at dinner. How close am I to this story? I'm in it. But yet still will not name myself by name. And so Peter, when he turns around, he saw him and he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Now I tell you all the time like, how difficult Greek is to read. In the Greek, this is literally, Lord, but this what? That's what it is. So you have to get from context that he's referring to this being the man because Jesus responds, what is it to you? So Peter, as he's, he's, he's walking with Jesus, and Jesus has just told him, do you love me, and examine his heart, his next response is, what about this man? What should he do? Peter now turns his focus, and hopefully his concern to his friend, when he should in fact be concerned with his heart. He should be meditating on these piercing words that Jesus just spoke to him, but yet he turns around. And Jesus, in his very patient and gracious way, Jesus says to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? Basically, I'm God. Stop questioning me. You follow me. I love this. First, he says, if it is my will. Jesus reminds him that it is my will that matters. The power of life and death resides with me. If it is my will, what is that to you? My will will determine what happens for him and what happens for you. But he says something interesting here. He reminds them that he's going to come again. If it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? First, he reminds them, it is my will that accomplishes things. But also, don't be worried about him. Be worried about my return. Be looking forward to my return. That's what you should be worried about, as should we. John's gospel account tells us the person work of Jesus Christ, but throughout John's ministry, as an elder, he writes his faithful epistles encouraging the church. But as a prophet, he sees into the future the book of of Revelation that actually shows the return of Jesus, and so John is going to get to see Jesus' coming in a vision. That is what the church is supposed to focus on. The book of Revelation is written. Not so that people can try to figure out if it's Black Hawk helicopters and which, which president is, is, is going to be, you know, the, the Antichrist. The whole point of the book of Revelation is that the Savior is king. He, the Lamb of God, has conquered and he is coming to redeem his people and we will all celebrate and be renewed with him. That is the purpose of the book. Because no matter who the beast is, no matter who the Antichrist is, he is coming. And the one who is coming will come for his own. And if you, your faith and trust is in him... There is nothing any of those enemies can do to you. Amen. And so Jesus says, don't worry about him. I'm coming again. So there's a couple things that we can pull from this. And the first thing I want to do is, is anyone, the first thing I want to do is ask, is anyone like this? Is anyone so obsessed with questions? Well, what next? Well, what next that you miss what Christ commands you? 
You're so obsessed with, well, what do I do now? What about this person? What's happening over here when he had just told him, if you love me, feed my sheep and follow me? So, number one, what does this teach us? Trust God's sovereignty, even if you don't know all the answers, especially if you don't know all the answers. Jesus does not give him an answer. He challenges him even asking the question. Because his question is more concerned with someone else and what's happening now than God's will for eternity. So number one, trust God's sovereignty even without the answers. Number two, this is a real temptation for us to concern ourselves with others. And this comparison, uh, one of my old pastors used to say that comparison uh, is the enemy of contentment. What we've seen throughout John's gospel is that there's a lot of uh, personal stories and a lot of personal interactions, and Jesus cares with each person for who they are. And there is always a temptation within us to compare ourselves to others. Well, what about this person? Well, I know I'm good. What about them? Or what, what are they going to do? What should they be doing? And Jesus is, is telling him here, you know, fix your eyes on me. Peter takes his eyes off. When he should be following Jesus, he's looking behind him. And so many of us are concerned with what other people are doing and how God has gifted other people. Be content with the way he made you. Run your race. Fix your eyes on him. He says, follow me, not look behind you to see what someone else is doing. And then number three, there's another temptation within us to concern ourselves with the, the big picture. God's future will and ignore what God's will is us for, for today. Jesus had just told him, if you love me, feed my sheep. You follow me. What about this guy? What about something else? We're not meant to know all of God's plans. We're not meant to know what God's plans are for everyone else. We are to love him and love his own and follow him. So, Jesus ends with these powerful words. What is it to you? You follow me. This is emphatic. You follow me. Don't worry about him. Don't worry about anyone else. You follow me. Your eyes should be on the back of my head, not looking behind you. Don't worry about him. He just told him a moment ago in verse 19, follow me. I just want to challenge you this morning as you examine yourself, as we close up this gospel of John. Are you following Jesus? Are you too busy looking around and comparing yourself to others and worrying about what other people are doing? Are you first and foremost following him? That's where Peter fell short, and it should be an example to us. So this caused confusion among the disciples, and actually people are still teaching this to this day. So I want to pick up here in verse 23. So the saying spread among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die. Some people still claim that John the Baptist is alive. There's still a whole message boards dedicated to it. Strange. But John says it clearly here. This is not what he's saying. But if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is it to you? Jesus is using the extreme example. If he never dies, that's still none of your business. You follow me. And then verse 24. This is the disciple, the one who's walking behind Peter and Jesus. That's how he has the intimate details of this conversation that none of the other gospel writers had because John followed. John followed Jesus as he should. This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that this testimony is true. This, John, this is the disciple, the one he's been talking about all along in the, in the third person. Uh, there's a lot of debate about we know that this testimony is true. A lot of people ask, did someone else write this? Uh, is, is this added to the gospel later on? What we do know is that John served in Ephesus for many years at the end of his ministry. And I think it's a safe assumption that when John is writing, this is not brand new news to the elders and those in Ephesus. He's probably writing in agreement to the church that we have stood under the, the teaching of John. This has been made clear to the churches. So, however this we is used, even if it's the, the royal we, it still applies. And then he says this amazing thing in verse 25. Now, there are many other things that Jesus did. 
were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Now, this is a bit of hyperbole, but the, the, the emphasis is, is clear here. John had an amazing three years with Jesus, and he only wrote down certain things. And so our question this morning and the rest of our time together is why did he write down what he wrote down? Why, are, why did he include what he included? And so he tells us in chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, the purpose of the entire book. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That is John's purpose. And I want to walk back through the entire book. Yes, the entire book to see John's purpose on display. And if you've never done this, kind of done a survey of a book, it's extremely helpful. But this is not just unique to this book. John does the same exact thing in his first epistle. So in 1 John, look at how he begins his letter. If you can get there quickly, a couple books before Revelation. If not, it'll be up on the screen. 1 John 1.1 That which is from the beginning, which we have seen, which we have seen, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we look upon and have touched with our hands. John is saying, I've, I've heard him, I've seen him, I've touched him. Concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, I mean made visible, God's life made visible in front of them, and we have seen it, and we testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made, to manifest, or was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you may have fellowship with us. The gospel goes out to increase Christian fellowship, that more will be brought in with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing you these things so that our joy may complete. This is a joy for John. This is John's life mission to testify to what Christ has done. And this is how he closes his first epistle. If you look at chapter 5, verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life in Him. Now he's writing to the church. If you believe, know, be assured that you have eternal life in Him. So, if you have not picked up a Bible, pick up a Bible. Turn your phones off. There's a Bible in front of you in the pews. You're going to need it. Grab your Bible. Open up to John chapter 1. So what does John's witness teach us? Hopefully throughout this summary that I'm going to try to get through in a reasonable amount of time, you will see a complete picture of who Christ is. And John wants you to know that this testimony is true. And I encourage you, if you have not been here, you can go back in these messages. So I'm going to try to give you the uh, Cliff Notes version. Let's be honest, uh, most of you got through school anyway. And... Can't say amen, you ought to say ouch. John 1 1. You know these famous words, and this is going to set up the rest of the book. John 1 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The first thing, the Word. In the beginning, the Word was with God. The Word is God. The Word is God, Creator. The the Word is life, and in that life, there is light. Let's pick up in verse 9. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through Him, Creator. Yet the world did not know Him. The world rejects Him. He came to His own, and His own people did not receive Him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. The light is creator and redeemer, reconciling those who believe to God. And they're born uh, to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him, and he cried out, This is he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have received grace upon grace. 
For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. This word, who is God, goes from glory to flesh, back to glory, full of grace and truth to make the Father known. And we know Him. We know the Father through the Word, the light, our Creator, our Redeemer. The rest of chapter 1 opens up the beginning of Jesus' ministry. We get the testimony of John who goes out and proclaims. And then we get the baptism of Jesus, which we pick up in uh, verse 29. John, who sees Jesus coming, coming, uh, declares, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is baptized. The Spirit comes on him. And John says, He is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. This will set up chapters 14 and 16 coming later. Then Jesus calls his disciples. He calls uh, John and he calls Andrew. Andrew who goes to get Peter. Then he calls Philip and Nathaniel. And what we see in each one of these instances is that he knows them. He knows them by name. He knows all about them. And he speaks to them as they need to receive his words. And this should remind us this interchange between Peter and John, not to get hung up on how he approaches one or the other, but he knows them all by name. And he calls them individually as he does with us. That is chapter 1. Chapter 2, we see his generosity at the wedding at Cana, where he turns water into wine. The first miracle that will begin his, his, his ministry is at a wedding feast. The culmination of his ministry is when we are brought home to him in Revelation 19 at the wedding feast, where the wine will flow. That is going to be a great feast with our Savior. And he will bring out the best wine at the beginning, and it will keep flowing forever. That is what it means to be blessed in him. And so we see his generosity at the wedding at Cana. But at the end of chapter 2, we see his zealousness for the house of the Lord, his righteous anger at those who are distorting, perverting, and manipulating God's people for their own benefit. And he rightly turns over their tables. Then in chapter 3, he engages with Nicodemus, the Pharisee, who comes to him in the middle of the night and tells him, you must be born again. You must be born of the Spirit. My kingdom is a spiritual one. Just like you were born into this worldly kingdom of flesh, you must be born of the Spirit if you are to see me. And Nicodemus is mystified by this. But we know that Nicodemus attends to his grave at his last days. And so the Spirit was working and Nicodemus attends. And we're going to pick up in verse 16 of chapter 3. Which, if you can be honest, this is what all most people know about the Gospel of John. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Well, we should stop here, right? Close the book. That's all that's in John? No. You must read. Why did he send his son to earth? Why did he send his son to the world? Let's keep reading. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does believe is condemned already. This is not a God loves everybody, all dogs go to heaven passage. This is he sent the, world, the, the Savior into the world because the world is already condemned. Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and the people love darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Why did the Son have to come into the world? Because the world is dark and evil and it hates him. But whosoever believes will have everlasting life. That is the purpose of this book. The world is wicked and it needs a Savior. And He is the Savior. And pick up in uh, verse 22 where John the Baptist, um, right here, John the Baptist declares the, the Christ and uh, he, he's asking questions and two things that John says should be the motto of believers. Verse 30, He must increase but I must decrease. If you want to sum up the life of the Christian, Christ increases, I decrease. John the Baptist, who Jesus says, no greater man has walked on the face of the earth. He says, I must decrease. Also, verse 36, John the Baptist brings in the theme of this book by teaching those who are within the hearing of his voice, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Why did the Son have to come to the earth? Because the wrath of God remains on sinners without him. We must believe in him. Chapter 4, 
is this beautiful interchange between Jesus and the Samaritan woman, who by all accounts is a social outcast who's had five husbands. And he should not be doing what he's doing by talking to this woman at the well in the middle of the day. But he gives her beautiful words as she comes to draw up water. Look at verse 13. Everyone who drinks of this water, the water that he gives. uh, Excuse me. Everyone who drinks of this water, the water coming out of the well, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give them will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up into eternal life. The gospel goes out to these half-breed Samaritans. Pick up again in verse 23. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. This woman hears the news of someone who gives water for life and who directs uh, the Samaritans to worship God spiritually, and she goes out and she witnesses. In chapter 4, we see new water. We see new worship, and we see a new witness in this woman, and the gospel spreads. The end of chapter 4, Jesus begins his his healing ministry. He heals the son of the official who's almost dead. In the beginning of chapter 5, he heals this, this crippled man on the Sabbath and infuriates the Jews. Yes, he healed on the Sabbath, But why were they so upset? Look at chapter 5, verse 18. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Jesus says, my father is working and I am working, making himself equal with God. If anyone says that Jesus never claimed to be God, that is why they killed him. In this, he brings those who are on the brink of death to life. He makes the, the, the lame walk. And he says, this is my Father's work, claiming to be God. He is associating himself with the Father. And then he goes into the rest of chapter 5 in this beautiful discourse of his authority, the authority given him by the Father, the authority over all things. Look at verse 24 of chapter 5. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but it's passed from death to life. You see a theme here? Whoever believes him who sent me, the Father has eternal life. He has not come into judgment, but it's passed from death to life. And so John witnesses in his gospel, but John says he is not the only witness. If we continue in chapter 5, John the Baptist is a witness. Verse 33, the works of Jesus is a witness. Verse 36, the Father witnesses. Verse 37, the Scriptures witness. Verse 39, Moses is a witness. Verse 45 and 46, all of creation, all of God's revelation is witnessing of Christ. We're only five chapters in. Chapter 6, he has power over creation. He takes the fish and the bread and he multiplies them, showing them that I'm the one who created it. I can do with it what I please. He also walks on water, showing that he has power over the forces of nature. And then we get into the end of chapter 6, where he gives us the first I am statement, the first ego a me statement that is looking back to the, to the burning bush. Who is this one who speaks to Moses out of the burning bush? I am. Jesus says the first I am statement in verse 35. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. Jesus' emphasis here is on belief. But look to where he points. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Those who are put into the hands of the Son, look at their surety in him. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. That is why he came, that we would believe in him and be protected in him forever. This is a theology lesson in chapter 6. I encourage you to go back. We have four or five messages in chapter 6. And we see the, the doctrines of grace and how God works his, his providence out in salvation in chapter 6. Um, we see his election and protection of the saints. Look at verse 54. 
Whoever, and it's, this is all through his flesh, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks on my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day, for my flesh is true food, and my blood is true, true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him, as the living Father sent me, and I live because, the Father, uh, because of the Father. So whoever feeds on me, he will also live because of me. He is given some by the Father, and whoever eats of his flesh and drinks of his blood um, symbolically, spiritually, whoever feeds on him will never die. He is the security of the saints. And this is sealed by the Holy Spirit. Verse 30, or 63, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. Back to the main emphasis again. For Jesus knew from the beginning, this is his divine foreknowledge, um, who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of the disciples turned back. This is a difficult thing to listen to. And no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? This is one of Peter's shining moments right here. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed, and we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Amen. When you hear Jesus explain salvation and his inner workings with the Father, that should be your only response. You are the Holy One of God. Where else can we go? Jesus goes into Jerusalem, chapter 7, teaches at the Feast of Booths. And they begin to weigh his words. And here's what he says in verse 17. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. If you're from God, you will hear my words. You will know what I'm saying is to be true. Test these words against what you know. And then they begin to debate, is he the Christ? The Jews try to arrest him and they send soldiers to arrest him, but the soldiers can't. Look at verse 46. The officer said, no man has ever spoken like this man. How can we arrest him? We can't deny that there's something different here. But yet, the Pharisees still plot against him. Chapter 8, we looked at the provenance or the, um, the uh, author- it, is this authoritative scripture. We said, that, we said no. I'm not going to go into that. You can listen to the message. It's on the website as to why not. We're going to pick up in verse 12 of chapter 8. The next I am statement. Jesus Uh, spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have everlasting life. Or, excuse me, will have the light of life. This connects back to John 1. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have light of life. Remember, that life and light are synonymous in John 1. Jesus is harkening back to John's introduction here in chapter 8. And he goes on in this chapter, in this life, There is light, there is truth, there is freedom. And everyone who opposes him is a son of the devil. Jesus does not mince words here. You are either of the light or you are of the devil. Then we get into chapter 9. This great exchange or interchange between this man who was born blind. What an amazing chapter in his family and the Pharisees and Jesus. And I love how this whole thing plays out. The disciples walk by this man born blind and they say, Jesus, why is he blind? Look what Jesus says to them in verse 3. It was not that this man sinned or, that his, or, or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of life. He just told them I am the light of the world, and now he's showing them because he's going to bring light to a blind man's eyes. And a lot goes on here and there, but I love how this uh, conversation closes up. Look at the end of chapter 9. Uh, starting verse 35. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? All this stuff. He made a blind man see. Jesus does not stop on his sight. He says, Do you believe? He answered, And who is it, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, with all of the, the, the nuance and double entendre that's going on here, You have seen him. And it is he who is speaking to you. You see him physically and spiritually. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. Jesus said, for judgment I have come into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who who see may become blind. And so then some of the Pharisees who were standing near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? 
Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. If you are in the sound of my voice and you are hearing these words, you have the truth. If you do not believe, your guilt remains and you are blind and you are the one who is judged that Jesus is talking about. Believe in him. Chapter 10, one of my favorites in the entire book. I have a lot of favorite chapters in this book. Another I am statement, verse 9. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and go in and out and find pasture. Again, another I am statement, verse 14. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for my sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. He's speaking of Israel and then he's speaking to the Gentiles. I must bring them in also and they will listen to my voice so there will be one flock and one shepherd. He is the door. He is the, the, the shepherd. He is the, the entrance. He lays down his life. He is the sacrifice. He is the shepherd of the sheep. And as we're going to see, he is also their security. Look at verse 27. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. How do we know that we are safe in Christ? My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father am one, are one. We are secure in Christ, the shepherd, the door, the sacrifice, guaranteed in the Father. His divinity fully declared here. Chapter 11 is this beautiful time of Jesus and his beloved friend Lazarus who's on his sick and deathbed. And when his friends expect Jesus to rush over there quickly, here's what he says. Look at verse 4, chapter 11. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Jesus had a plan even in the death of Lazarus. And when he gets to the tomb and they roll the stone away, before he says a word to Lazarus, here's what Jesus says. Fast forward, chapter 11. Uh, we're going to pick up in... Oh, but before he gets there, verse 25, another I am statement. So when, they're, uh, when Mary and Martha are brokenhearted over their, their brother, Jesus says to them, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he lives. Resurrection and life is co- connected to belief in the Son. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? This is the only question that matters in this book. Do you believe this? Martha responds, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into this world. And after her response in faith, Jesus weeps, stands in front of the tomb. And he says this, verse 41. So they took away the stone. Jesus lifts up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. Why did he raise Lazarus from the dead? that they may know that he is sent from the Father and that they may believe in him. And of course, at this, the plot of the Jews thickens and they want to kill him. And they outright say it. And look at the language of why they want to kill him. Still in chapter 11, picking up in verse 48. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But Caiaphas, this wicked snake Caiaphas, prophesies. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest at that year, said, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better that if one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. You have no idea, Caiaphas. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for that nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. God uses pagans to accomplish his purposes, and even out of the mouth of a snake, truth came for God's glory. Chapter 12, this begins the, 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 the Holy Week, the Passion Week, Jesus' final entrance into Jerusalem. In Passover, he's anointed at Bethany. Uh, they, the plot continues to kill him. He has the triumphal entry where he walks into Jerusalem. Verse 13, they're shouting these words, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Even the Gentiles seek him. When Jesus hears that the Gentiles seek him, look what he says, chapter 12, verse 25. What does it mean to seek Jesus? Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. That is what weighs in the balance. Do you love your life in this world? 
If so, you cannot keep it for eternity. If you hate your life in this world, you will have eternal life with me. That is the stakes that are here. The rest of chapter 12 talks about how people still reject him. In the midst of the rejection, he has the Passover feast in the upper room with his disciples in chapter 13. He washes their feet. He shows his love for them. He shows an example of service. Except one. I know whom I have chosen. You are all mine except for one. Look at verse 19. Why does he tell them that one is going to betray him? I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am. After that, he predicts the betrayal and the denial. He also prophesies and foreshadows what's going to come. And he speaks of his glory and love to them. Chapter 14, we get another great I am statement. I am the way, the truth, and the life. He's responding to his disciples saying, we want to go where you are. Why can't we follow you? I am the way. You don't know the way? I'm the way. And the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus speaks of their, their future home. I'm going to prepare a place for you and your present home. While I'm preparing a place, me and the Father, we're going to come and make our home with you. And how will you know that we are making our home with you? We're going to pick up in uh, chapter 14, verse 25. What is the mark of the Son and the Father making, our home with, or making their home with the saints? But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. The sign, Father, Son, and Spirit making their home with them is the Spirit's indwelling and teaching and reminding. And then he tells them again, I'm telling you this before it takes place. You guessed it. Verse 29, and now I have told you this before it takes place so that when it does take place, you may what? I think this is coming up a few times. Then he gets this other great I am statement in chapter 15. I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. What is the mark of being uh, abiding in the true vine in love? Look at verse 5. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. This is the vine that is the necessary fruit for eternal life or any life at all. I am the true vine. And he goes on to tell them that he loves them and he gives them the commandment to love one another and you are my friends. I have revealed everything the Father has given to me because I love you. And the world is going to love you because of it, right? Of course not. Look at verse 19. What's going to happen to those who abide in, in the true vine who are the ones he loves? If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but because I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. He's going to go on and continue to work or talk about the work of the Holy Spirit in the saints, picking up in verse 26. But when the Helper comes, don't worry about the world. I'm sending the Holy Spirit. When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. The witness of the Son from the Father through the Spirit will do what? Verse 27, and you also will bear witness. John is faithful here because you have been with me from the beginning. This is why John is a faithful witness because the Spirit is empowering him and driving him to do it. A spirit, or excuse me, a work of the Spirit in the saints in the world. Look at verse 7. They don't want Jesus to go, but he tells them, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. The Spirit working in the saints in the world. Look at verse 13. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into the truth, for he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he, he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me. For he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Why must the Spirit come? So that knowledge of God can reside in God's people. That's what it means that the Father and Son make their home in the body through the Spirit. And then this beautiful word at the end of the chapter. I have said these things to you that you may have peace. 
in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. All these words are for the peace and the comfort and the security of believers. You will have troubles in this world. Do not believe everyone who tells you you become a Christian and things are going to be easy. If you've been a Christian for more than five minutes, you know that. But Jesus tells us that you will have tribulation in this world. But I came to the world to overcome the world, which opens up his amazing high priestly prayer in which the glory of the Son is declared in verses 1 through 5. It is made known to the disciples in verses 6 through 10. He prays to the Father for the unity and sanctity of the body in the world. And then he prays for unity and glory for the saints in Christ. Pick up in verse 20. He is praying right now for his disciples. I have kept them, all of them, except the son of perdition. I want them to be witnesses. I've not called them out of the world, but sent them into the world. And in this beautiful world that, word that applies to you and me. I do not ask for these only, not the ones just standing in front of me, but for those who will believe in me through their word. We believe through the word that was passed down from the apostles, the proclamation of the gospel throughout the centuries, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may uh, be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I give to them, that they may be one even as we are one. Unity and glory in the Father in, and the Son, that is what Jesus prays for through belief in his word. And what happens? directly after this prayer, his betrayal in the garden. Three times as he is confronted by the soldiers who come to arrest him, I am, I am, I am, claiming his deity, and they fall down at the strength of his words. But a few moments later, Peter denies him three times, I do not know him, I do not know him, I do not know him. He is tried before the Jews, he is tried before Pilate, and then Jesus opens up his kingdom before Pilate and tells him the nature of his kingship. Look at verse 36. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of this world. They were looking for a political king. Then Pilate said to them, so you are a king. Jesus said, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. His voice is truth. His word is truth. If you are his, you hear his words like when the shepherd speaks, the, the, the sheep's ears prick up, and you belong to his spiritual kingdom. That's why we don't have to put our trust in kings or princes or presidents, because he is our king and we are citizens of his kingdom. And Pilate could never understand that. Because there is no truth in him. The response to the Jews, this man who has done nothing wrong, crucify, crucify, kill him. And Pilate, who is a coward, cowers to the demands of the Jews. Jesus is crucified, put on the cross. He, he, he dies, he's buried in a tomb. All according to the scriptures. And what does John say about all this? Chapter 9, verse 35. He who saw it. John speaks from the foot of the cross as Jesus speaks to him. Son, behold your mother. Mother, behold your son. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth. Why does he tell all these things? Why does John testify again that you also may believe? John does not mince words. John doesn't care. But all these other things, but first and foremost that you believe in Christ, all this I am writing that you may believe. Jesus rises again from the grave as he declared that he would on the third day and appears first to Mary Magdalene, this broken woman who he restores and casts out evil spirits from. She sees him, hears his voice, and falls down at his feet and worships him. What does he say to her? Verse 17. Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Jesus has just risen from the grave, and he doesn't even give her time to reflect on that. It is better that I go and ascend to the Father. I have a seat on the throne of glory at his right hand. But go and tell. When you meet the risen Christ, the first thing you are to do is worship. Then as soon as you get off your knees, go and tell. Tell my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to our Father. Or excuse me, to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. He meets with his other disciples, and he meets with Thomas. 
doubting Thomas who has to see it for himself. Look at verse 27. And he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. That is our gospel proclamation. Here is the risen Christ. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. What a beautiful response. Better late than never. Jesus says to him, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. Brothers and sisters, you are blessed because you have not seen and yet you believed. This is where John gets to the purpose of the entire book. Now Jesus did many other things in the presence of his disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in him. The last couple weeks we've been in chapter 21. Jesus meets the disciples by the lake, and this fishing analogy that began in his ministry in Luke 5 has now come to culmination. They bring the fish onto the shore. None are lost. He makes them fishers of men, and then adds the shepherding analogy onto the fisherman analogy. You are evangelists, but you are also pastors. Care for my sheep, tend them, love them. And then we get ourselves to today. You follow me. That is the Gospel of John. Why do we go through the Gospel of John? You'll see it on the screen so that you will read, learn, and share. We want you to read John. Meditate on what John says. Know that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that you may believe in Him and have eternal life. Read and know that. Be firmly rooted in it. Learn it. Like the back of your hand, you should be so comfortable with this that it naturally flows off of your lips. Learn how to articulate it so that you can share it. This is good news. This is good news. This is the news that the world needs to hear and that we should be confident in what, who Jesus is and what he has done, that we can declare him. Romans 1.16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. To the Jew first, also to the Greek. That's us. A couple quick questions. Do you read his word? Have you read through John's gospel? Have you learned it? Have you applied it to your heart? Do you know it? Do you believe? And do you share it? So before we take communion and give us a few moments of reflection and repentance, this communion table is a response to those who believe in the Son of God. That He is the Christ and in Him is life everlasting by taking of the bread and the wine. You are declaring that he has died for me and my life is hidden in his flesh and his blood.